I'm going to start off today with um, Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Good morning again. Thank you, Christian. If you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 this morning, we will spend our time looking at this text, and it's good to be here. Sometimes it weighs heavier uh, teaching the Word, and you never quite know what Sunday morning is going to feel like, and I will at times feel very confident um, around Friday or Saturday. And I very rarely feel confident on Sunday morning, and I think that's by design. I think that's the Lord's design. As you turn to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to focus on verses 15 through 17. B.F. Westcott said this, there cannot be a vacuum in the soul. He's not talking about your shark or your auric. He's talking about something far more important. A vacuum is a space devoid of matter. So when he says there can be no vacuum of the soul, what he's saying is is something is there. Something inside of us is the thing that we love. There's something that we care for, that we love, that we pursue. There is no vacuum or space devoid of matter in our souls. We are never devoid of love. It's only a matter of whom or what we're loving. It's always a matter of what, it's not if. Dr. Harold Best once said that um, we were created to worship, and then he corrected and he says, we were created worshiping. He goes, lots of people say we're created to worship, but that gives off a false impression to think that we actually have a choice in the matter. You're worshiping something right now. It's just a matter of what or whom. The Bible's clear on the options when it comes to what we're loving. There are only two. We're in every moment either serving God or something else. We're either serving the God of heaven that created everything that we've ever seen, or we're serving something that was created. Sometimes that can include ourselves. It is that simple, and anything besides God falls under the same category which we see biblically taught that would be idolatry. Anything besides loving God and pursuing God is idolatry. In fact, one man put it this way. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan had it right. I like how there's murmuring amongst the people. You guys are already catching it over there like, that's Bob Dylan. (laughs) Bob Dylan didn't always get it right, but he got that right. He did get that bit right. We're going to serve somebody. We are currently serving somebody. Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount 
as he clarifies the reality that we're serving someone in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. Our desire ought to be like Joshua when the covenant was renewed in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, after Joshua gives them all of the reasons that they should be serving God, he says this, but if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living? Then he says that famous quote that we like to put up in our houses right next to our live, laugh, love. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. Joshua makes a statement. He says, you have the choice before you, but we're going to follow the Lord. And, and you look at that, you're like, well, so, you know, he made the choice. And, you know, maybe other people have reasons to choose. They had no reason to choose any of the other gods. The God of Israel had done so much for them. He had demonstrated his power over and over to them, leading them out of Egypt, defeating the armies of the Egyptians. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them through the wilderness and all the wandering. He was faithful to them. He fed them from the skies. And so Joshua says, I've seen enough. As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. Who or what we worship is directly the result of who or what we love. It's a result of our love. It's a result of what has filled that vacuum or that space in our soul. Something has filled it. There is no empty space there. Loving God first begets love for this world in the way that he strengthens us to, but loving anything else besides God begets loving the sinful ways of the world. We love the world properly when we love God. But we love the ways and the things of the world when God is not the center of the focus of our hearts and our lives. Loving anything else besides God most begets loving the sinful ways of the world, loving the materials of the world, loving ourselves, loving our own hubris. It's the iron with which the shackles of sin imprisons us, is loving this world or things of it. And so here in 1 John 2, verse 15, we're going to pick up where Pastor Rob left off last week. And here in verse 15, following the encouragement to the church, following this, this encouragement to the fathers and the children, the spiritual leaders, the young men, all these different categories that he calls out in our section prior to this, John continues, and this week he gives an exhortation and he gives a warning. He says this in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. To avoid confusion, we need to clarify the difference, I think, of loving the world and not loving the world, and why that's two very different statements. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. We know this from probably the most popular Bible verse ever written, John three sixteen. I like to add verse 17 for perspective. For God loved the world in this way, 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God didn't send Jesus to condemn. He sent Jesus to save. That was because God loves us. He did all of this because of his great love for us. Yet John urges the church to not love the world or the things of the world. And it's important for us to understand what he's talking about. William Barclay explained the difference regarding this text so well when he said this, the world in this passage does not mean the world in general, for God loved the world which he had made. It means the world which in fact had forsaken the God who made it. Do not love the world that has forsaken the God who made it. In other words, there is a definite way to know and understand that we are serving God and his purposes, and there is a way to know and definitely understand that we ought to not serve the world that has forsaken him. God created the world and loves the people within it. And in this way, we're to love the world. But in the context of 1 John 2.15, we're called to not love the broken sinfulness in the sense that we compromise We become like it. We desire it for ourselves. And this makes sense when we remember at this time, these churches John's writing to are not undergoing persecution. They're not in a season of persecution. A lot of times we read the letters, we we, we kind of imply that. Like there were definitely places and areas at this time that were going through persecution. The church was struggling. But here in this region of Ephesus that John's writing to, there's not heavy persecution in this area. And because of that, they're under the dangerous temptation to compromise. When there's not persecution keeping our focus on the Lord sharp, oftentimes we get complacent in our faith. We start getting shaky on what we actually stand upon. We start to conform to the world. And Paul warns the Roman church about this in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. That's how we worship God. He says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We need to be transformed from our fleshly mindset to a new, fresh, well, new creation in Christ, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We need to be new creations. We need to have a fresh mindset, and we cannot conform because conforming to the world means that we love the world. Looking like the world and desiring the things of this world is love for the world. Lack of persecution can lead to dangerous complacency amongst the church. We need to be on guard against conformity to anything besides Christ. I know that the last thing that we want is to proclaim the promise of God that those who desire to live righteously in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's one of those promises you don't hear thrown out there in church very often. Kind of clears the pews out. Or chairs. Most people, we got pews, but I mean. But here's the thing. You guys... We oftentimes don't like to talk about that because we're actively avoiding discomfort. We actively avoid discomfort. It's okay. I do it too. But we need to call it what it is. Wrong. Avoiding discomfort for the sake of myself is not only selfishly motivated, but it reveals a worship in something other than God. 
Jesus did not pursue comfort, did he? Jesus pursued the righteousness and the will of God, which led him to a Roman cross. Are we willing to do whatever it is that God has asked us to do, regardless of whether we're comfortable about it or not? My comfort is not important. And lack of persecution leads to this dangerous complacency. And we shouldn't be seeking more comfort. We should be seeking to extend ourselves into a world that needs to hear the message of Christ. Do not love the world or the things in the world, church. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't love this world and don't love the things of it. Again, John paints this black and white picture. You can't have both. As Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. You can't have it all. He continues in verse 16, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but this is from the world. Charles Spurgeon called the three sinful practices listed here by John in verse 16 the devil's trinity. I thought that was really insightful. And kind of unpacking these, these byproducts of loving the world individually, let's use that idea as a template. Let's think about that. This, this is like the devil's trinity. Number one, it's the lust of the flesh. Now what John's getting at when he talks about the lust of the flesh is this is the part of our nature when it's without the grace of Jesus that offers a point of entry to sin. This is the point of entry to sin. This is the open door for sin in our lives. Lust of the flesh is worldly ambitions and aims, and it's very wide-reaching. Lots of, lots of us will probably hear lust of the flesh and think something sexual. Think that it's inappropriate sexual desires. Well, it includes that. It certainly doesn't exclude those things. But this encompasses so much that it ought to convict us all because the lust of the flesh includes not just ungodly sexual desire, but it includes idolizing comfort and ambition above God. It includes idolizing comfort and ambition over what God wants. It is so rare to find young people these days when you go to them and you ask them, what is it that you want to do with your life? For them to look at you and say, I want to love Jesus. I want to teach others to love Jesus. And I want to leave this world loving Jesus. It is so rare that they would repeat the words of Count Zinzendorf. I love saying his name. When he says, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Powerful, powerful words. Do you know what you get most of the time when you talk to people? What do you want to do with your life? Their ambition. Their career. Is it wrong to have ambition and to have a career? No. But if that's the first thing that we desire, and we have put that over loving God, Loving the Lord, making him the center of our lives, we have a problem. All of these things need to fall in in order, and we cannot love the things or the ambition or the desires of this world more than we love Jesus. Loving luxury while others live in poverty. Feeding ourselves while others go hungry. This is lust of the flesh. That's what lust of the flesh looks like. It's me-focused. Love of God not only begets love for others, it creates opportunities to serve them. I think oftentimes I fall to this where I, I'm looking for opportunities kind of in the path that I'm walking in. 
How often do we as a church look to create opportunities to bless people? I'm looking for the opportunity to create something. God is a loving God and he created. Are we creating opportunities to take care and to look after other people, to minister to other people because his love dwells within us? I believe that a loving church that loves people in the way that God loves them is creative about the ways they reach their community. We need to get more creative. We need to keep thinking of ways and opportunities to reach out because the love of God led him to create not only a perfect world, but us. Love of God will beget care and creativity in our culture and in our community. Love of the world begets lust or desire, craving for the flesh and for self. That's the first that John gives to us. Then he says the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. This is envy, but not only envy. It's not only our desire for something for self that we don't possess, but when we possess it, flaunting it. Right? We never do this. I mean, I'm talking about other people here. You've never wanted to make someone jealous with what you have or somewhere you've gone or something you've done. You realize I'm pointing right at me right now, right? Like this is stuff that I'm struggling with. This is stuff that I feel the desire to do. The ability to accomplish and feed this ungodly desire has grown so much in our technological age. The lust of the eyes, how many apps do you have? How many ways do you use those apps to manipulate people to think that we actually are doing better than we are? Flaunting the abilities and the things that we can do. Do we use these platforms to point their eyes to Jesus? Or is it all about something that we've just done, accomplished, or get to enjoy? Now, what I'm saying in the midst of this, I'm not saying it's wrong to share with people. But is our motivation the love of God, or is it the love of the world? What's behind it? What's the root of the issue? I've said this recently to a handful of people because it's been coming up a lot in my counseling sessions. When you see the tree, there's always roots underneath. Oftentimes, we're trying to fix the problem with the tree without getting to the roots. We're not going beneath the surface to say, what's feeding this beast? What's underneath all of this? Something is causing these feelings and these things that are going on in your life. And if we don't deal with the roots, we're not going to get a solution on the surface. If we don't deal with the heart, we're not going to have a solution for the physical on the outside. For what's going on right here. We are tempted more readily in our current social climate to be materialist than we have ever been before. It is more available to us now than it has ever been before. Materialism is knocking on the door of your mind continually in our current culture. It's literally in our pockets, or maybe it's even in your palm at this very moment. As you're looking at your Bible app, but feeling that temptation to switch apps. I used to love that when I was a youth pastor. I'm just using it for my Bible. No, no, I'm just, it's just my Bible. It's like, then why are you doing this? I'm taking notes. Give them to me. That's where the dialogue ended. And the phone would go back in the pocket again. Because you don't do this when you're reading the Bible. And if you're adding that much to the word of God, we have a problem. You guys, did you know that in the late 70s, or actually in the 70s in general, in the late 70s, a study was published that said it was estimated the average person saw 500 to 1,600 advertisements per day. 
through billboards, newspapers, and TV. In the 70s, 500 to 1,600 a day. Now, what's interesting is as I was reading the statistics this week, it was earlier in the week, I started noticing as I was driving down the street how much I was being advertised to, let alone my device, let alone looking at you know, articles on the news or swiping through social media. In 2007, that number had jumped to 5,000 per day. From five to 1,600, depending on where you live, to 5,000 per day, according to Yankovich Research Firm. Now, do you know what the estimate is today? Depending on where you live, 6,000, which isn't much more than 2007, because 2007 was 5,000, to 10,000 ads per day are assaulting our eyes. Think about this. We even have things that are listening to us that send you advertisements that you were talking about to your wife, right? She's like, we could really use one of those. And Google's like, put an ad on his Instagram. Boop. <gasps> they're listening to us. Do you think they heard what I said about them before, the day before? Yes, they're all going to come kill you. You guys, is it a sin to see an advertisement? No. Do they rule our lives? Does material acquisition, does possession, does the desire for these things start to overwhelm us? Maybe, church, <gasps> he's going to say it. Maybe we should unplug a bit. Maybe we should unplug a bit. You guys, I'm not saying that it's wrong to look at an advertisement, but think about all the opportunity that we're ge being given to lust or crave or desire with our eyes things that will never satisfy our soul. We're never going to be satisfied with this stuff. Do you ever notice that? Your favorite shirt? I mean, that's on a short time period. You know, this is my new favorite shirt. I've never loved a shirt as much as I love this shirt. Two months later. That's ah, okay. I need a new one. <laughs> and Amazon. Bling, here's 15,000 of them. Which one would you like? Like the one that makes me look thin. I want that one. You guys... We need to take action to limit opportunities for the enemy to tempt us. Seek to do what Paul challenges, challenges us to do in Romans 13, 14. Do you know Romans 13, 14? Great verse. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. He says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't know if you know this, but in the Greek, no means no. Make no provision for the flesh. You guys... In our complacency as a church, living in the comforts we've lived in, we have allowed this to slip way far away from what Paul encourages us to do. We allow ourselves to be tempted and to be drawn into the desires of the flesh way more than we ought to. You're like, you don't know me. You can't say that. I can say it about myself then. And I challenge you to look within and see if it's true. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The third in the devil's trinity, as Spurgeon would call it, is pride in one's possessions. It may seem redundant that pride in possessions is the third thing mentioned. When we kind of talked about materialism in this vein. However, if you look at the word John uses for pride, it's the Greek word alazon. 
It's a fascinating word because if you read some of some ancient moralists talk about the Alazon as they describe this person, it was a man who laid claims to possessions and to achievements which didn't belong to him. We would call him a braggart. Someone who bragged about things and maybe would stretch the truth a little bit. You know, this one time I was in this one place and you weren't there and I did this. Aren't you impressed? I know this guy. Yeah, we ran into each other once. Like, you did? Okay, I do this. All right, conviction time. You know, you, you, were, you, you tell somebody like, I ran into this person this one time. Like, oh, you know them? Well, yeah, we know each other a little bit. You know, and talked, and they're like, wow, they're really famous. Yeah, it makes me famous too. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure they'll call me any time now about that thing in that, that, that place. I was doing this not long ago. I felt so convicted over it afterwards because, like, I actually rubbed shoulders with this guy in the bathroom and talked to him at the urinal. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he never once looked at me because, you know, awkward. And then we never spoke again. But that conversation really had an impact on me, nothing for him. But I have the right to look at somebody and say, I know that guy, I just hung out with him for one day. Had a conversation, what'd you talk about? Not looking at each other. Like, <laughs> stare straight ahead. You guys, you realize that, that we are prone to this, to this bragging and making something of ourselves that we're not. We don't have to do that. That falls under the pride in one's possessions. It falls under the Alazon. The one who lays claim to things or to achieve things that don't even belong to you. That you didn't really do. Embellishing on truth. The manifestation of loving the world will lead us to attempting and always seeking to make ourselves out to be less. Humility is the mark of the Christian. Not pride. We shouldn't be attempting to make ourselves out to be a bigger deal than we actually are. We're just people. We are fallen, broken sinners who were nothing until God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And that's when Jesus came. People who love the world are people who value everything based off selfish appetite. They're enslaved by the desire and pride of possession and boastful about things that don't belong to them. We can't be like that. This whole world belongs to God. Everything you see belongs to him. We are stewards, church. We are stewards of all of this. As pastor leaders, we're shepherds. And as stewards, we recognize that we're just here to take good care of God's things. Because one day, we'll give an account for how we took care of his, his world, his people. It's not about a name up in lights. It's about preaching the truth, dying and being forgotten. That's what it's about. May the name of Jesus be remembered and not ours. They don't need to remember me. They need to remember Christ. They need to see Jesus. Church, as we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we're called to be a people who realize some very important things. One of them is that we are beautifully and wonderfully made. 
We are fearfully and wonderfully made according to Psalm 139, 14. We're created to bring honor and glory to God as the worship of heaven proclaims in Revelation 4, 11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. How much of that worship of heaven that we read in Revelation 4 is about us? It's all about him. It's all about his ability, what he's done, and we're just like, wow, God, look at you. Amazing. You'll notice this, the worship of heaven continues to sound like that throughout Revelation. Glorifying God, honoring who he is, worshiping him, calling on him to do things. It's all about him. Even this world right now at this very second is all about him because if he released the nuclear glue that's holding your molecules together, you're done. I'm done. God is literally holding everything together. Because he is worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. He exists because he created what he pleased. John's warning is he says, don't love the world. Don't fall to this, this trinity of sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. He concludes it in verse 17 with this, and the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. It's almost as if he draws lines down from both sides, from both philosophies, and he says, you see this right here? This this trinity of sin, this sickness of the world, this is passing away. It's going to end. And he draws a line down from God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God who intervenes and comes into our mess and saves us from our sin. And he says, if you love God and you live for him, that is everlasting. Amen? Everything we do in obedience to God, those things are treasures in heaven. Those things are everlasting. But when we serve self, it all passes away, it all burns. The love of the world, life deteriorated by sin and flesh will pass away. It won't last forever. The vacuum of the soul when filled with anything besides God is temporary and wrath is its destination. And I, I, and you could have knocked me over with a feather if you told me someday I would be preaching this way. Old school. Maybe we need a little more of that. Maybe we need a little more call to be accountable for sin to be righteous in the eyes of God, not to lord it over everyone, in humility, longing to be conformed into the image of Jesus more than we want to look like anything else in this world. You guys, love of God, give to us because God is love. He gives us his love because he is love. He's given us himself. So loving that he saved us through the sacrifice of Jesus, he poured into us and strengthened us by the spirit. This is eternal his word in us, Jesus, the word of truth. He said it himself, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why he said in the upper room to his disciples as he prayed and spoke to the Father, I've given them your truth. He says, sanctify them in this truth. Cleanse them with your truth. Your word is truth. I have given them your word, he said. Sanctify them in it. Grow them through time. Cleanse them as they walk, as they mature in that truth. And church, we need the truth of God to transform us, 
to renew our minds, to draw us as we grow in a, in a continual maturity in Christ. Worship team, would you guys come up? This morning as we consider these things, as we think about what we love, I really want to call us to introspection. I want to challenge us as a church to look at our own lives, to examine ourselves, as Paul told the church in Corinth. In Corinth he said, examine yourself so that you know you're in the faith. He says, look inside, assess these things. And as we do that this morning, we're going to celebrate the eternal life that Christ has given to us as we remember him with communion. As those who are going to distribute communion, if you come forward and, and, and prepare that, I, I want to share in a couple thoughts about communion this morning. The first thing that I want to share is that communion is a family meal for the church. Communion is a family meal for the church. As we take from one bread, which represents Jesus symbolically here, we're affirming that we are one body with him and with each other. This is a family meal that we share together. It is significant because Christ has made us his body, his family, his church. The second thing I want to remind you of is communion is not to be taken lightly. Paul states regarding the bread and the cup in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Examination is vital. We need to know that we are filled with the love of God, that we are centered and focused in on what he's called us to be. This is a time for examination, for us to come to the Lord in our own hearts and to pray that prayer that David did in Psalm 139 at the end. He says, search me, Lord, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way that's everlasting. That's a beautiful prayer to pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. So we're going to sing for a moment. They're going to distribute the elements. They're going to pass them out to you and want to give you the opportunity to take time to examine in your heart. You can sing, you can pray. And then when you get the elements, hold on to them and we'll take them together as a church family. Let's worship and receive the elements and examine our hearts.